Welcome to the Central Baptist Podcast. Today, Pastor Barton explores issues of meaning through his sermon series, The Story That Makes Sense of Our Stories. After listening, we'd appreciate it if you took a moment to rate and review the podcast. Your response helps others discover the life-giving truth of the gospel. Now, here's today's message. This morning's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 2. It's from verses 18 to 25, and also 1 Corinthians 6, verses 13 to 20. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all, all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was, no, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, He took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. 1 Corinthians six thirteen to 20 Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise up by his power, raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You may be seated. All right, well, good job, Central, getting here on time this morning. Uh, If you're just walking in the door or you're just waking up and you think we started the whole service with preaching, no, we did not. There was a time change last night. So if you're at home, grab another cup of coffee. And uh, for those of you a little bit falling asleep today, I'm with you. That's a rough night. I don't know why one hour makes such a big difference. I have no idea, but it just does. Also, before we get going, a quick special welcome to one of our previous pastors and his wife here today, Ernest and Merlene Kennedy. I don't even know where they are, but would you just welcome them? I saw them earlier. There they are, right there, yeah. Welcome, always good to have you. 
All right, uh, we are continuing on in this series, taking us up to the week before Easter. We'll do a little something different for Easter, a particular message for that time. But what we're doing in this series is that we are talking about all kinds of important subjects like, you know, is there purpose and meaning to life? How do we decide right and wrong? How should we think about topics like human rights? And what we've been saying is that we all have stories that we believe that make sense out of those particular topics. And so it might be a religious story that we believe. Uh, It might be a non-religious story that we believe. So each week, what we've been doing, we've been taking one particular topic, and we've been saying, what are the stories that people believe about this particular topic? We've been examining those stories, and then we've been comparing and contrasting those stories with the Bible story, specifically in Genesis chapters 1 to 3. Why we're in Genesis 1 to 3 is because Genesis 1 to 3 really gives all the building blocks for the entire Bible story. It's all there, either in seed form or even in full form. And so it's such an important few chapters of the Bible. We're not working it through verse by verse. We're kind of taking the big picture topics, the big story topics. And in all this, we're asking then of each particular topic, what story makes the best sense of this topic of life in this universe. That's what we've been doing. So today, now we're going to come and talk about a topic that is really largely impractical, that hardly anyone anyone ever talks about. It's going to be a rare subject, but we need to hit it up. We're going to talk today about sexuality. And of course, I'm being facetious because, you know, sometimes when we talk about this in church, I get a little bit of pushback and people saying, do you really need to talk about this topic in church? And I'm always a little shocked by that response because when I look at our world, it seems to be the only topic that is being talked about. And I think to myself, don't we want to, as Christians, raise up a new generation that knows what it means to follow Christ in this subject, which the world is just always talking about? If we can't talk about that in church, where can we talk about it? Not only that, the Bible has a lot to say about it. God's not ashamed to talk about it, so we shouldn't be either. So here's what I want to do today. I'm going to change it up, uh, the format up a, a little bit today compared to what I've done in the last few weeks. I want to look at three cultural stories that we as a culture, people in our culture, believe about this whole topic of sexuality. And then as we look at each of the three, I'm going to compare and contrast each one of them with one part of the Bible story. The Bible's got one story, really, about sexuality, but we could break it down into three parts. So I'll give a cultural story, then I'll give the Bible story. A cultural story, Bible story, we'll do three of those this morning, all right? Shall we get going? Take a breath, get the oxygen flowing. I know we're a little tired. Let's do this. First cultural story I want to look at, I'm going to simply refer to as the prudish view of sex. The prudish view of sex. A prude, by definition is someone who is excessively modest about sex. So what is a prudish view of sex? I'll put it this way. A prudish view sees sex as dirty, taboo, and on a lower level 
than spiritual things. So you can see this prudish view in anyone who would be like a kind of a hyper-conservative person. They could be a, a re- religious person. They could be a secular person. Don't have, they could be one or the other. The kind of person who would never, ever, ever talk about it in adult conversation, has, would never talk about it with their kids or with their teenagers. It is a taboo subject that you just do not talk about, except to say, well, you should never do. And what you should never do comes through loud and clear, you shall not commit adultery. Crystal clear. That's made clear by anyone who kind of takes this kind of a view or acts this way. You shall not commit adultery. That's a pretty clear rule, isn't it? I mean, can anything really be added to it? I I don't know. Maybe Dr. Zeus could add a little bit to it. You shall not commit adultery, not in the rain, not on a train, not in the dark, nor in a park. You will not, shall not. Only Dr. Zeus could add anything more to that. It's pretty crystal clear. Now, that's an important thing. We'll get to that maybe a little bit later on. But listen, if sexual pleasure is never discussed at all in a positive way, or if it is only communicated what you must not do, then people grow up as children, as teenagers and adults with this prudish view of sex, though they might never say, this wouldn't be their label, but you'll know that it's you if this is the view you take. And then in turn, I must tell you, (laughs) and you'll probably know, it in turn causes a lot of problems in the bedrooms of married couples because one or both feel very inhibited from this viewpoint, causes a lot of difficulties. Now, while this negative view of sexuality is often blamed on the church, the blame actually goes a lot further back to a man named Plato. Did you know that? Plato is the one who could be responsible for this kind of a view. Who's Plato? First of all, Plato was a philosopher who lived a few hundred years before Christ. And whether you know it or not, his views have largely influenced the entire way that anyone in the Western world thinks. When we talk about this whole subject of human sexuality, what we're actually talking about is what is a human being? And more specifically, what is the human body? How you answer that question will determine your views on sexuality. So here's what Plato taught, and you'll start to see it in our culture, Western culture today. Plato taught that the real you, the essence of you, is actually your soul. And he taught that your body is just a shell. It's a shell that contains the real you, your soul. And so he taught that your body, he would have used the language of your body, is a prison house for your soul. Plato's teaching then went through all kinds of different changes and shifts over the hundred years leading up to Christ, and then was hugely dominant during the era of the early church in the form of an ancient heresy that Christians called Gnosticism. Gnosticism also took this view that the material world... The physical world is negative. Some would even say evil. And true reality, what really matters is the spiritual world, the soul, the spirit. These are the things that are the real, the really real, if you want to put it that way. So you can see then, if this is your view of the human body, if it's just a shell, if the physical world and everything in it is just either negative or even evil, and the soul is the real you, you can see how that's going to have a big view on your views of sexuality. Really, it can go one of two ways. Some people would say 
if the real me is my soul and my body is just a shell, then it doesn't matter what I do with my body. I can do whatever I want with my body. It really does not make any difference. We're going to talk about that one in a few minutes. But for this point, the other view that became so strong, especially during the New Testament era, was the opposite. This view said, no, no, no. The body and physical pleasures are actually the problem. There are animal instincts. There are lower urges. And what we need to do is we need to deny ourselves, press down all those animal urges in order to focus on the soul and on the higher things of the spirit. And so there was huge movements. You've probably heard of these in ancient history where you know even married couples and things would live apart in order to pursue spirituality uh, because that was the higher principle. And sometimes you think, that's crazy. In our culture, maybe, but you can see where they're getting this from. If the real you is your soul, then you've got to rise above your animal instincts. You deny yourself physical pleasures like food, uh, like any other enjoyments, a comfortable bed, and yes, even things like sex, in order to focus on your soul. So you can see how this creates a negative and prudish view of sex. And as people became Christians in the first few centuries, this was a big problem. In fact, you know that the letters of 1 John... Colossians and 1 Corinthians were written in large part to combat this very idea, especially Colossians, written to combat this idea that to be really spiritual, that means you need to deny all physical pleasures and never eat food, sexuality, all those things. That's what it means to be holy as a Christian. That's why those letters were largely written. So it's not just the church sometimes that has been to blame for this. It's the influence of Plato's thinking coming down through history, which divides the body and the spirit of the soul and says that the spirit and the soul is the true you, while all your body and pleasures are things that are negative or even evil. So to summarize then, a prudish view of sex sees it as dirty, as taboo, as an animal instinct that we should rise above in order to focus on our souls. So that's the first culture view. Probably not the most popular one in our culture, but it's there, no question about it. Now, let's contrast this first cultural view with the first part of the Bible's story about sex. I'll summarize it like this. Sex, according to the biblical story, is the good gift of God to be enjoyed between a man and a woman within marriage for the purposes of pleasure, procreation, and cementing their oneness. What's very striking, as soon as you open up the Bible, is the first thing, the first things that the Bible says about this whole subject are not negative things. They're not commands against that. They're not even warnings. As we're going to see, the Bible begins with a giant celebration of this whole entire subject. But again, we need to say this. Genesis, this Bible story in Genesis, roots it all in this idea of what is a human being, and more specifically, how should we think about a human body? This is so critical. I'm driving this whole point home to you this morning. That's how you'll determine everything to do with these things. So what does it teach? Well, let me give you kind of a modern Christian viewpoint. Here's a quote for you. People often quote C.S. Lewis, and they say, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. You have a body temporarily. 
Okay, so people say, C.S. Lewis said, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. That's the true you. You have a body, but you only have it temporarily until you die and maybe you go to heaven to be with God. Now, you just focus on this for a moment. What do you think about this quote? Do you think it's correct? You agree with it? There's two problems with this quote. First of all, C.S. Lewis didn't say it, even though many people attribute it to him. He never said it. It's from a novel. Secondly, it's not biblical at all. In fact, it's anti-biblical. It is Gnostic. It is Plato's thinking. It is not biblical thinking. And yet I would submit to you most Christians today would read this and say, that sounds about right. The influence of Plato and Gnostic thinking down through Western history right into our modern church today. Here's why I say all this. In Genesis chapter 1, the physical creation that God creates is not evil and it is not negative. God did not somehow create a higher spiritual realm and then say, I'll create this lower form down here of this physical earth. I don't really like it. It's not that great. It's definitely, eh, we'll, we'll, we'll work with it, okay? That is not how Genesis 1 reads. Genesis 1 says God creates the physical world and all the pleasures within it from eating the fruits in the garden to everything he creates and he steps back from all this physical stuff that he has created and he says, it is very good. The biblical story begins with this fundamental truth that the physical world is very good. And when God creates human beings, does he create souls that kind of float around the Garden of Eden and kind of float around the earth? Is that what human beings are? Oh, no. Genesis 2, verse 7, here's what we read. And then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Listen to these next few paragraphs carefully. They may just change your entire viewpoint from what you thought your entire life. I'm sorry to break all your categories, but it's all for your good. To be human is to be body and soul. Your body is as much you as your soul is you. Your body is not a prison house for your soul. Your body is not just a shell that holds your soul until it can be released to go to be with God forever and ever. God created human beings with bodies. To be human is to be an embodied soul. You say, but my body's kind of breaking down. I don't really like my body too much. Fair enough. That's because death got introduced into the world. It was never meant to be like that. What, why is death so horrible? Death is so horrible because it quite literally kills a part of you. Now, of course, the Bible teaches that we have a soul, and when the Christian dies, their soul goes immediately. Like when Jesus died, he went to be with his Father. He went to paradise. So also when the Christian dies, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord but the body has died. The body goes into the ground. Now, here's the sentence that may just blow your mind. The great hope of Christianity is not to die 
and if you believe in Christ, to go to heaven and be with God forever. Whoa, hold on. What did he say? Let me repeat it. The great hope of Christianity is not to die, and if you believe in Christ, to go to heaven and be with God forever. I chose those words very carefully. I could rephrase it. I could say, a hope of Christianity is to die, and if you believe in Christ, to go to heaven to be with God. It is part of our hope, but it is not the great hope. That was my words. It is not the great hope. Just as the great hope of Jesus was not to die on the cross and go to be with his Father in paradise. Is that the end of the story? Is that where Christ's story ends? That's not where his story ends, and that's not where our story ends. Listen, I'll put it positively. The great hope of Christianity is the second coming of Jesus Christ. The second coming. If you read the New Testament, it's all about the second coming. This is the great hope. Why is it the great hope? Because at the second coming, Christ will raise from the dead all who are dead in him, give us resurrection bodies, or transform our bodies if we're still living, into bodies like he has been given. Christ is forever the resurrected and glorified human being. He stands forever at the right hand of God as the resurrected and reigning Christ. He's not a soul floating up somehow. And so also the great hope of Christianity, read 1 Corinthians 15 or just about anywhere in the New Testament, is we follow in the steps of our Savior. Those who die right now go to be with Christ, but the great hope is that one day, he will reunite us, body and soul. He will take that which has been killed and he will conquer it, giving us resurrection bodies. So on that day, the saying will come true, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Because we will be embodied. The true us, body and soul, will live forever. So in total contradiction to Plato and to all of Gnosticism and anyone who takes a negative view of the body, the biblical story begins by saying the human body is good because God created it to be good and one day he's going to resurrect us and conquer death, giving us eternal resurrection bodies. Now you're thinking to yourself, weren't we talking about sexuality or now we're talking all about the second coming? It's all part of it. Now bring it all back. This has huge implications for how you think about sex. In Genesis 2, God creates Eve, and then God officiates the first wedding. God brings Eve before the man, and Adam sees her for the first time, and here he sees a creature unlike the animals who is like himself, and it says they're naked and unashamed, and so like any good groom, he breaks out into poetry. Here's what he says. Then the man said, this is at last, we got to have some fun, right? Come on, can we? All right. This is at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. All right, time to play some Bible Jeopardy. Ready? Bible Jeopardy, this is only for 500. It's not the Daily Double. You should know this one. What is the first command that God gives to human beings? The very first command that he gives. What is it? Can you think of what it is in your own mind? Some people often have this idea that God's a killjoy. That his, his commands are always negative commands. And he's trying to just ruin all our fun and restrict us. You haven't read the Bible. Far from it. 
the first command of God is not a rule about what you should not do. It's rather a command about something that human beings are to do. It's a command to do something positive. And what is that command? Well, after Genesis 1.27 says God created male and female in his image, we read these words. And God blessed them and God said to them, here's the command, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Translation, as a human species, God is saying, I want you to get married to one another, to enjoy this gift of sex that I've given to you. In fact, I want you to enjoy it so much you're going to make a whole pile of babies and fill the entire earth. Go ahead, get to it. That's the first command that he gives. Now, just, I don't want any misunderstanding here. That's not saying that somehow if you're single today, that, that somehow you're disobeying that command. I don't want any misunderstanding on that. We're going to talk a little bit about this later on. That's the general command to the human species. And, of course, there's all kinds of reasons why this doesn't happen. Uh, and so we're not quite getting into that today. We're keeping a little more high-level picture. But as a general command, I think we can all understand this. That's the general way the human species is to work. And then the rest of the Old Testament just continues to take, contrary to the prudish view, this very positive view of the human body and of physical pleasure and of sexuality between a man and a woman within marriage. In fact, you know we have an entire book of the Bible dedicated to this subject. I mean, sometimes we think the world talks a lot about it. So does the Bible. A whole entire book we call the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. Then we have like the book of Proverbs where a man is teaching his son, what does it mean to grow up and be a man, son? Well, how do you become wise? And he takes huge chunks, as a good father does, to teach his son about sexuality. This is what you need to know, son. We need to have this kind of conversation. And his language is not crude. It's not pornographic. But neither is he embarrassed or prudish to have that discussion. Here's, for instance, what he says to his son. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, son, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated, be drunk always in her love. That's the Bible. <laughs> it's in the Bible. And there's lots more verses like that. And listen, we shouldn't feel embarrassed, but God wasn't embarrassed to inspire this by his Holy Spirit to put it in his word. <coughs> Excuse me. So if we feel embarrassed, maybe we've gone a little too far. Contrary to the prudish and Gnostic views of sex, the Bible's story is unblushing in its celebration of human sexuality as a good gift from God. So that's cultural story number one and biblical story number one. Let's turn now to look at the second cultural story. This is probably the most common cultural story of our day. You'll know it as soon as I start to explain it. I'll simply call cultural story number two, I'll call it the playboy view of sex. And what I mean by that is this. The playboy view of sex says it has no spiritual significance. It's just a natural appetite that we should be free to satisfy however we wish as long as it's consensual. The Playboy view of sex says it has no spiritual significance at all. It's just a natural appetite, like other appetites, that we should be free to satisfy however we wish as long as it is consensual. Once again, this all comes back to your, how you answer what's your story about what is a human being. What are we? 
And what are our bodies? If you believe the story that there's either no God or how somehow there's uh, a God who created everything, but he's really not involved in our lives at all. In other words, if we are just the process the ran- of, of, of evolution over billions and billions of years, and there's not really a God involved in this, then it would make sense. It makes perfect sense within that story to say that sex is a natural appetite. We are just highly evolved animals, and just like the animals procreate, so do we. It makes perfect sense. There's nothing spiritual about it. It's just an animal instinct. It's an appetite to be enjoyed. We don't go against other natural appetites like the appetite to eat, the appetite to drink. So why then would we ever want to go against this appetite? It's a natural appetite, so feed it. What's the big deal? I remember when I lived in Vancouver and pastored there, uh, one of the professors at UBC, a word came back to me from one of the classes uh, through some of the students. He was saying, sex should be viewed like a tennis game. Two people should just agree to come and enjoy a game together And when they're done, there shouldn't be any more strings attached. Just like you don't have to do anything after a tennis match with somebody, you shouldn't have to do anything else. There's no strings attached. Just enjoy the game. In other words, what they're saying is, what's the big deal? It's just something to be enjoyed. It's just something you can have fun with somebody else. As long as it's consensual, you should be free to be able to do whatever you want, with whomever you want, with however many people you want. Yet here's the thing. As much as people in our culture say that, we all know, and it comes up constantly, that that just doesn't work. We all know it because there's something, we know there's something missing in that viewpoint. We know that there's something more to all of this. We're not sure as a culture anyways. We're haunted, in other words. There's something haunting us. We know there's something more to it, but we're not entirely sure what it is. Here's how we know it. Have you ever heard a rock band write a song about a tennis match? I mean, the most popular artist in the world today is probably Taylor Swift. She's got lots of songs. None of them are about the food she ate last night, how she was hungry and she went to a meal at this restaurant and ate. None none of them are about her other appetites. Oh, but she's written a lot of songs about romantic love. In fact, this is hyperbole, but I think I'll say it. You'll agree. We could divide all the songs in the world into two halves. The first half are about how wonderful and great romantic love is, and the second half are about how terrible and painful it is when romantic love goes wrong, right? Generally speaking, isn't that entirely true? In other words, what I'm saying here is clearly there is something more to it all than just satisfying an appetite. There's there's something way more going on than just satisfying an appetite. Something way more than just recreation and something that's pleasurable and something to enjoy. We know there's more going on because people get so upset and so hurt when their spouse cheats on them. it's, It's the end of the world. There's something deep within us. It hits us very deeply. So while this cultural story is right and that it affirms human sexuality in a positive thing, it can't seem to answer why it's so powerful, why it's so painful when it gets used wrongly. It's haunted. It can't figure out what that something more is. So let's contrast this kind of more playboy view of sex with the second part of the biblical story, and I'll put it like this. Sex is far more than physical union. It is that, but it's far more than that. 
It is a profoundly spiritual act that unites two people and should therefore only be used in marriage. Used as in a gift. Maybe I should have said enjoyed. Biblical story number two, the Bible says sex is far more than physical union. It is a profoundly spiritual act that unites two people and should therefore only be enjoyed in marriage. So a prudish view of sex has way too low of a view of sex. It doesn't see it as good. But here's what I want to say. So does the appetite view or the playboy view. The biblical story elevates sexuality to something much higher than just an appetite or something that is taboo, or something that is dirty. The Bible story says it is a highly spiritual act that when two people have sex with each other, they are joined in ways that goes far beyond just mere biology. So even when people say, you know, sex is no big deal, it's just an appetite, in reality, everybody knows there's more going on than just that. And that's why, to fast forward in the Bible story, we come to Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, and here's what he writes in chapter 6 and verse 13. He talks about this appetite view, this playboy view. He says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Notice that's a quote. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So Paul is quoting the Corinthians in his first sentence, the Corinthians are the ones saying, hey, it's just an appetite. Food goes into the stomach, uh, and the stomach is for food. Same way, we have other appetites. This is what's going on here. It doesn't really matter what you do with your body, is the quote that's going around. Paul, though, says, what a person does with their body matters in huge ways. Because once again, we are not just bodies, and we are not just souls. We are, as human beings, embodied souls. That's what the Bible story is. So sex, then, is not just the uniting of two people in kind of a physical, material sense. It is that. It's not just one-dimensional, though. The Bible says we all know deep within ourselves it is something way more than that. We know it intuitively. We know it deeply. It's something bigger. It's something more than just physical. It's multidimensional, It's also spiritual, is what Paul is getting at. So that is why Paul goes on to say this. We'll talk more about this in a moment. But he says, Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Never should we do that. Now, why not? Because Paul argues the believer is spiritually united to Jesus, and casual sex does more than just join two bodies. That's his point. And that's why he goes on to say this. Flee from sexual immorality. For every other sin a a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple? You hear in the spiritual language? A temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, the price of the blood of Christ. So therefore, he says, glorify God in your body. So listen, once you become a Christian, what he's saying is God's Spirit, the Spirit of the living God, comes to dwell in you just like God's presence dwelt within the temple. Your body, your physical body, is not just a shell. It's not a prison house. It's a temple for the Holy Spirit himself. And so then to join this temple with anyone through casual sex is not just a physical act. It's a spiritual act. 
And this is why this appetite view or this playboy view ultimately fails. It's why even Hugh Hefner himself never found ultimate happiness. It's because sex is so much deeper than just physical nakedness. It's way more profound than that. And that's why the Bible requires marriage. Because listen, especially any of you who are struggling on this side of things, we'll have a word of grace for you uh, later on. But here we need to just push into this. If you want to say to someone, I want to have sex with you but not get married to you, realize what you're saying. What you're saying to that person is, I want your body, but I don't want you. I want to be vulnerable with you, giving you all of myself physically, but I don't want the rest of you. And I don't want, to be, I don't want your problems. I don't want your finances. I don't want your, your deepest thoughts. I want your body, but I don't want you. I don't want commitment with you. I don't want to be tied down by you. I just want your body. That's ultimately what you're saying. But is that to treat someone else? You, you, well, let me put it this way. You know intuitively that sex requires the entire person. That's why the biblical story makes so much sense of it, because you know intuitively, or if you're enjoying sex, you, you know intuitively to do that is to give all of yourself. And the Bible story says if you're going to give all of yourself, then you must give all of yourself, as in your full commitment, your finances, your emotional problems, and every single other thing that comes with you. To give you means to give all of you. Hence why the Bible says it's a good thing to keep it within marriage. It's multidimensional. Again, the Bible story, I think, makes sense of our experience. So that's cultural story number two and the biblical story number two. But now we need to do a third part, okay? So here's the third final cultural story. I'm going to call it the new pagan view of sex. This doesn't make immediate sense to you. Here's, here's what I'm going to mean by that. The new pagan view says that sex is the way to connect with the divine. The way to connect with the divine. Now, early, in the early 1990s, our culture began to experience a massive shift in the way that people viewed sexuality. This old playboy view, playboy started something like in the 60s or something like that, that old playboy view is just an appetite. We just satisfy appetites. People knew intuitively that's more, there's more to it than this. There's got to be more to it than this. There's something higher about it. People knew this, and yet they did not want to give up the permissive sexuality of the 60s and the 70s. And so this new view began to emerge and became very popular. The new vision began to say that sex is something spiritual, unlike the old just appetite view. It is spiritual, but they also wanted to justify the permissive view. And so this view came out that said that sex enhances spirituality. In fact, sex is the way to experience the spiritual realm. Listen to Daniel Heimbeck. According to this version, sex is again profound. Contrary to the Playboy view, it's again profound and deeply meaningful because it enhances spirituality. Sex is not ultimately for love, marriage, or family relationships. Rather, it is for connecting yourself with the spiritual power running the universe. And so in the 1990s, there was a flood of books that still come through to this day. Go to any New Age bookstore. Go to any New Age section within the bookstore, and you'll see it. You'll see. Uh, you, you've probably already seen this. I don't need to tell you. L listen, here's just a few titles. Passionate Enlightenment sensuous spirituality, erotic worship in American tantra, tantra, 
That's just to name a few. Really, they could all be summarized well in the words of a former Catholic monk named Thomas More when he said this, the highest levels of spirituality are made accessible through sex. So the New Age teachings all throughout our bookstores, all throughout especially our West Coast idea, is that No, no, no. This appetite view, they were all wrong about that. They were right to say you should be able to have it. That was true. But they said they all missed it because we all intuitively know there's more to sex than just satisfying an appetite. And so this new view says sex is the way to spiritual enlightenment. But this new spirituality is in fact just a return to ancient paganism. That's why I called it neo-paganism. Neo means new. And, And this is not me just saying this. All these authors would say, we are reviving the ancient ways. We are going back to the ancient pagan views. Paganism is a way to describe how people thought in the thousands of years before the time of Christ. And if you want to, well, it's hard to really summarize a lot of it, but take the Canaanites, for instance. You know them from the Bible. The Canaanites believed that the physical and the spiritual world were merged as one. So this is where we kind of get some of this New Age ideas today. Christians would say God is everywhere, but Christians would say God is not the tree. God made the tree. Whereas a lot of the pagan views would be God is the tree. God is not just everywhere. God is in everything. And so then to have sex and experience that is to merge yourself with the divine, to enter into the spiritual. It's the highest way that you can achieve spiritual enlightenment. And so in ancient Canaan, for instance... The Canaanite people believed that the productivity of the land, their harvests and everything like that, depended upon their gods, Baal, and his female companions up in the heavens, depended upon them having sexual relations with each other so that the rains would fall and the crops would grow. And so then they had temples to Baal where there would be prostitutes and every good man, every good upstanding member of society would go have sex with a temple prostitute. The idea being, if you did that in the temple, It would hopefully get Baal and his females up there in the heavens to do what they need to do so the rains will fall and the crops will grow. Now, of course, you think to yourself, that's ridiculous. We don't believe that anymore. No, we don't believe that version of the story anymore. But this cultural story, whether you believe it or not, is basically saying a lot of the same ideas. That this spiritual world, we achieve enlightenment into it. We enter into it through the experience of, of sex. So let's contrast this third cultural story now with the final piece of the biblical story. And here's the final piece of the biblical story. It says that sex is spiritual, but sex is not God, and neither is it the way to access God. So the biblical story can agree with this this pagan view of sexuality that, yes, it's profoundly spiritual. Contrary to the prudish view, contrary to the playboy appetite view, agree with it in this sense. It is a profoundly spiritual thing, but it denies it in saying you've elevated it now to be the be-all and end-all, and it is not that. The Bible says that men and women do not encounter the divine through sex in this sense of the word. The biblical story says sex is spiritual, but sex is not God. It's not the be-all, end-all. And sex is not the pathway to God. So one last time, let's look at 1 Corinthians because I did not tell you a part of the background of this passage. In Paul's day, much like ancient Canaan, 
Corinth as a city was dedicated to the goddess Aphrodite. And so she had a temple in that city. There were temple prostitutes in there. And again, every man as a, as a part of his civic duty, quite, quite honestly, his civic duty, would go and have sex with a temple prostitute in order to retain the favor of the goddess over the city. So you were going against society if you did not do this. Paul says, as a Christian man, you must never do this. Why not? Here's what he writes. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Flee from sexual immorality. You were bought with a price, with the blood of Christ, so glorify God in your body. So you see, the Christian story then affirms the goodness of sex, but it always distinguishes it from God. Sex is spiritual, but it is not God. It does not enable us to tap into the divine, but in a way it does point us to God. G.K. Chesterton, I think, put it well when he said this, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Ponder on that for a moment. Every man that knocks on the door of a brothel, place where he can access prostitutes, is looking for God. What is he saying with that? What he's saying is, we all have a deep yearning within us, a yearning to be known and a yearning to know, a yearning to experience pleasure. We all have these deep yearnings within us. And the man who knocks on the door thinks he can find it there, but he can't. And I think we've all learned this within our society. We hear it over and over again from those who have pursued this with all their might. Look at each generation you could go. I mean, Russell Brand in our generation, these people have had thousands of partners and at the end say it's hollow. It, did not, it does not satisfy. Uh, Wilt Chamberlain from a previous area, that bas famous basketball player, claims, who knows, claims to have slept with 20,000 women and yet says he would trade them all for one who would love him. Those who've pursued it entirely at the end, say, it's not what you think. It has not satisfied us. He's knocking on the door, but he's got a deep yearning to know and be known, to find this pleasure, but he cannot find it in all these partners. In this cultural story of this neo-pagan view that says, this is the way you access God. You know one of the greatest problems with that? It means anyone who's not having sex, if you're single here today, or you're married and you're having a difficult time in your marriage, means you cannot access the divine. It excludes every single person who is not engaging in it. At a very exclusive viewpoint, if this is the way that you receive enlightenment and access God, gets rid of a lot of people. What about all the single people? What about all those people who are not doing this? The Bible's answer is much more satisfactory here because it says that God did create sex as kind of like a sign a sign that points us to God, but that is not God. Just like when you see the sign that says, welcome to Victoria. Nobody says the sign itself is Victoria. There's a, there's a reality beyond the sign, a greater reality, the city itself. In the same way, that is what sex is. You have a yearning to be known and to know and to experience pleasure. And the whole Bible story then goes towards this, where it says that God, your creator, sent his son into this world in order to die for your sins, including your sexual sins, of which we are all guilty, whether in our minds or our bodies, that Christ, listen to this, Christ knows you. 
He knows you more deeply than anyone else knows you, for nothing is, un, nothing is covered before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He sees all, which is terrifying on the one hand. He sees to the depths of our being. He sees our wickedness. He knows all of our lustful thoughts. He knows all the things we've done. He knows all of those things. He knows us down to the depths, and yet he loves us to the skies. The whole Bible story can be framed within the idea of a man and a woman in marriage as it is in many places. That Christ is the bridegroom who came to win for himself a bride. His bride being his people whom he dies for. On the cross he takes our sins, including all of our sexual sins, upon himself in order that we might be made pure. Wear the white dress, so to speak, of the bride. And the one day it's promised that the bridegroom is coming back for his bride. That he wants his bride. He has done everything necessary to win his bride. And a day is coming when he will return and he will bring his bride into the final and eternal wedding feast of the Lamb. There is one who knows you and who wants to know you more. There is one who promises you in the words of the psalmist, eternal pleasures at his right hand. You think sexual pleasures are great? Oh, there's nothing compared to what God promises to his bride. That day is coming for all of us. It's what we long for, the second coming of Jesus Christ, when he will come to destroy death resurrect his people and bring them into that eternal wedding feast where we will be, <coughs> excuse me, reunited with all those who have gone before us, some even this past week, these past few months, so many here at Central, be reunited at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Sex is not the way to God. Jesus is the way to God. So I ask you, do you know Jesus then? Have you been knocking on all the wrong doors? All those yearnings that you have to know and be known and to find pleasure, they're all signs pointing you to a far greater reality that your creator wants to know you and he's done all that is necessary through Christ to bring you to himself. So a prudish view is wrong well, it's right in that it does not make sex a God, but it's wrong in that it fails to treat sex as something that is good. The playboy view or the appetite view rightly understands against the prudish view that sexual pleasure is good, but it strips it of all meaning because it just reduces it to an appetite to be satisfied. And the new pagan view rightly adds spirituality, but it makes sex so important that it becomes God itself. It becomes the be-all, end-all, and excludes anyone who's not actually having it. The Bible story makes better sense than all of this. The Bible story, I think, makes great sense of what we all know, that it's a good thing that God created. It has higher dimensions. It's not just an appetite. It is something higher. It is spiritual. And yet the Bible does not elevate it so high as to say that it is God or it's the way to connect with God. Rather, it's something that points further to Christ and to what he's done for his bride. So as we bring this to a close then, in application, if it's something that you get to enjoy, enjoy it as a good gift from God. If it's within your marriage, anyone, whether married or unmarried, flee from sexual immorality 
If you're a believer here today, you've been bought at a price. So honor God with your body and then come to Christ, receiving the grace and forgiveness. For I bet I can guess in my heart right now, even as we speak about this today, I'm sure that there's lingering guilt over maybe the thoughts that you've had this week, last night, things you've done in the past which haunt you. Christ went to the cross for you. He gave up his very life. And the promise of the Bible is he washes you clean. And he puts on you the radiant, <clears throat> the radiant dress, the, bridegroom's, the bride's dress of white, making you presentable, making you ready to come into his presence as you come before him and say, Jesus, wash me clean. Let's spend a moment in prayer. And I want to just leave you a moment of silence maybe to come to him and whatever is on your heart, wherever the Spirit is speaking to you this morning, take a moment and just speak to God about whatever is on your heart. Father, we thank you for your good creation. We thank you that you created us, body and soul. And one day, Jesus, you promised to resurrect us from the dead. You will have the victory over death when we have resurrection bodies, immortal bodies, powerful bodies. We long to have that body like Christ has even now, he who is the first fruits, the firstborn from the dead. Father, we also pray you would forgive us, have mercy on us where we have not obeyed you when it comes to your good, your good laws for us concerning this gift. Forgive us for lustful thoughts. Forgive us for actions, for things we've looked at, people we've looked at, things we have done wrong with our bodies. Forgive us. Wash us clean. We thank you for the blood of Christ that cleanses us that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We rejoice in you, Jesus, our Savior. Have mercy on us. Our society, we look around us and see how far it has gone astray on this topic in particular. Have mercy on us, O oh God. Teach us your ways. Help us to follow you. Jesus, we long for the day when you will come and make all things right. Help us to be ready for that day. Help us. Give us the strength for those who are struggling in this area. Give us the strength to follow you and to honor you. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, we pray. Help us to be ready for when you return, Jesus, our bridegroom. We ask it in your name. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcast. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Podcast.